Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. In a week of by-the-book feel-good movies like Rory's Way... I really want you to be in my life, whatever's left of it. And epic cases of Hollywood eating itself like the new Lion King. What's your plan for getting us past the slobbering guards? All we need to do is find something that's like big and juicy. Why is everyone looking at me? One woman knew the difference between right and wrong. Critic Pauline Kael. Pauline Kael had a voice, and I understood her voice, and I related to her voice, even when I disagreed with her. And there's very few critics who have the guts to go out there and write an honest review of a bad movie. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. It's a truth worth saying and repeating that movie criticism has very little to do with objective truth. It's an opinion, that's all. And even when that opinion comes from people who look like they know what they're talking about, it doesn't carry any more weight than the judgment of anyone else in the cinema. They paid at the box office, and surely it's up to them whether they felt they got what they paid for. Simba, you must remember who you are. The one true king. Now that's the latest of the Disney live remakes of old animated classics, The Lion King, though in this case it's not so much live action as photoreal animated. And it's currently one of the biggest opening films of the year, second only to the mighty Avengers Endgame. You must take your place in the circle of life. Everyone likes it, that's reality, as the cynical screenwriter at the end of Robert Altman's The Player famously said. Box office equals quality. Well, meanwhile, at the lower end of the market, carefully engineered feel-good movies are being aimed at the senior demographic with a view to making up in profit what they may lack in imagination. This is Rory McNeil. Films like the clunkily titled The Etruscan Smile, now safely renamed Rory's Way. So any criticism of either of those films that doesn't take in their box office success is either elitist snobbery or willful ignorance of modern tastes. Ignore the quality, feel the width, seems to be the general idea. Well, one person might have begged to differ. It's hard to talk seriously about movies without mentioning Pauline Kael, one of the nation's most thoughtful and provocative critics of the movies. Yeah. It's pretty sharp cut. You always refer to her as that ghastly woman. 
not so much begged to differ as insisted strongly. Her name was Pauline Kale, and in many opinions, including mine, she was the greatest or at least most persuasive movie critic ever. Her life and judgments are captured in Rob Garver's documentary playing at this year's International Film Festival. She's never said a good thing about me yet. But you like her? Dirty old broad. (laughs) (laughs) But she's probably the most qualified critic in the world. It's called What She Said, though it could just as easily be called If I Want Your Opinion, I'll Give It To You. More on her shortly. But first, a quick look at what's on offer in general release. There might be a day, sometime very soon, I won't be here any longer. I'm not going to make the same mistake with him I did with you. The Etruscan smile made several changes when it was transferred from a book to a movie, not least its title. It's now called Rory's Way, reflecting that the action has shifted from Italy to, why not, the Scottish Hebrides. The original author was Spanish, I believe, while the film's two directors are, as far as I can make out, Israeli. Is there a daughter I really want you to be in my life. Whatever's left of it. However, Spain, Italy, the Hebrides, Israel and San Francisco, California finally proved to be irrelevant. Rory McNeil, played by Brian Cox, actually comes from colourful old Codgerland, the home of feel-good movies. Do what you love where you can. We meet Rory, skinny-dipping in his Highland lock. Put some clothes on, Brian, please. And getting into a lovable feud with a neighbour over which of them will die first and who will get grave-dancing rights afterwards. This isn't quite as charming as the creators seem to think. These pills are used to treat the horses. I am an old horse. She get on that flight and get some help. It turns out Rory is very sick and he reluctantly goes to, why not, San Francisco for treatment. San Francisco has been the home of his son Ian for years. Ian, his wife Emily and baby son James. I haven't seen a man for 15 years. He wants to see a doctor. Doesn't give a crap about us. Emily not breastfeeding then? Nope. But she does have breasts. Dad. Thanks, Dad. Very colourful. Ian and Rory clearly have issues, as they say in these movies, aggravated by Ian's line of business. He's one of those gastrochemist types, concocting wildly expensive dishes at wildly expensive restaurants. Salt-of-the-earth Rory sneers, preferring good old Highland blood sausage. Give me the bloodiest thing you've got. <laughs> something that will burn my throat. What the hell is this? Now, this plot device only works if Rory is at odds with snobby big city types who all love Ian's pretentious expensive dishes. But they're not that keen either. And as the story starts wandering off in different directions, I found myself sidetracking too, looking at a cast of blasts from the past. Gosh, Roseanne Arquette has had some work done, hasn't she? That smile. This is how the Etruscans pictured their dead. They don't look dead to me. You can't die with a smile? 
Roseanne plays a museum executive, drawing Rory's attention to the Etruscan smile from the film's previous incarnation. Also along for the ride are long-time no-see Tim Matheson from Animal House, Peter Coyote from E.T. and Treat Williams from Miss Congeniality 2. What the hell are you doing? I'm filming you. Put that damn thing away. Look with your eyes. If it was up to you, nothing in this world would ever change. Hallelujah. It wasn't Alice here that I left. It was you. And when you find yourself Googling Treat Williams, it's clear that Rory's way is not yours, and despite everyone's efforts, it's unlikely to elicit an Etruscan smile out of you, or any other kind. This is the sort of film that gives cantankerous old Luddites at odds with their long-suffering families a bad name. We should have met years ago. We met just the right time. For years, I couldn't work out the purpose of the wholesale remaking of classic old Disney animated features. Surely the originals are still fresh and entertaining, so why the cover versions? On the other hand, for the primary market, the under-tens, I suppose, the 20th century must seem as remote as the Middle Ages. Who watches crusty old 2D anymore, Grandpa? Life's not fair, is it, my little friend? While some are born to feast, others spend their lives in the dark. Well, the box office take of the new Lion King has answered many of these questions. Through the roof, if you're asking. Even if all they've done is refilm most of the original script with photoreal lions, toucans, hyenas and warthogs. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Technically, like director John Favreau's previous remake, The Jungle Book, this Lion King is amazing, I suppose, though these days we're all getting used to what digital animators can do on their computers. Anything, if you're asking. My memory of the 1994 original is a little sketchy, but this feels like a blow-by-blow, painting-by-numbers copy, despite the stellar voice cast. When I am king, the mighty will be free to take whatever they want. Run away, Simba, and never return. Donald Glover, Beyonce, Chuetel Ejiofor as the villainous Scar, and James Earl Jones returning to play the original Lion King Mufasa all treat the script as holy writ. Only the comic relief, John Oliver, Keegan-Michael Key and Seth Rogen, are allowed to riff a little bit. You live here? Well, we live wherever we want. We do as we please. If you want to live with us, you have to eat like us. Mm, Mm -hmm. Extra crunchy. They're local. Yeah. Oh, are they? They're from right there. But all that respect with all that photorealism was starting to make me itch. Take out the artistic license that traditional two-dimensional animation offers you and you take out most of the point of this sort of film. While others search for what they can take, a true king searches for what he can give. Digital animation is great at rendering reality, but it struggles with impressionism. And photoreal animals, particularly wild African animals, raise problems that you'd think anyone who's watched a few David Attenborough TV shows could have predicted. Hakuna, Matata, Hakuna, Matata, Hakuna. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna, Matata.
that old circle of life thing was fine in the original because, let's face it, cartoon animals don't really need to eat anything. But a photoreal lion, particularly one put out in the desert for a few days, isn't looking at that amusing warthog or meerkat as a source of entertainment, if you catch my drift. What's your plan for getting us past the slobbering guards? All we need to do is find something that's like big and juicy. Why is everyone looking at me? Aside from the zoological uncanny valley problems with two real animation, you run into the fact that this film may boast technical marvels, but otherwise it's light on any other sort of magic. The original Lion King, despite the rather earnest symbolism and Tim Rice's clunky lyrics, had plenty of undeniable charm and old-fashioned story smarts. I'm going to be the king of Pride Rock. Is that so? Mufasa has something he never had before. A weakness. This just has a mission statement. Don't mess with the formula and make it look state-of-the-art. Well, they certainly did that. I was bored rigid. Remember. Since American film critic Pauline Kael was famous for putting herself in all her reviews, it's only appropriate that I should say I fell in love with Kael when I read her summary of the classic movies of the past. The book was called 5001 Nights at the Movies, and it was my introduction not only to Pauline Kael, but to the great films of the golden era. And it also mostly established my own taste for a while. The films Kael loved, I tended to love. The artists she hated, I went along with. She was a hard influence to shape. She loved Steven Spielberg and hated The Sound of Music. She loved Goddard and distrusted Billy Wilder. She seemed to be more interested in starting a conversation or an argument than she was establishing her infallible knowledge of the cinema, which is why I still love her, particularly after seeing the documentary about her at the film festival. It's called What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael, and I'm joined by the director, Rob Garver. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. Hi, Simon. Nice to talk to you. Well, the thing that struck me first is that I'd never actually seen footage of her. I'd only ever read her. Did Pauline Kael do much TV? She did, but not a lot. She uh, Most of the interviews that she did on television, I and my researcher were able to find, fortunately. But, you know, she was on the shows of the period like Dick Cavett in America and Johnny Carson and a couple of shows in the UK that I know of. You know, she most of the time she was working and she wasn't trying to be a public figure. She wasn't like like a Siskel or an Ebert. The interview at the top and tail is completely unexpected because she's talking to a small child and she's really sweet. Oh, yeah. That was actually about a year before she died. And that was uh, with the daughter of a, of a close friend of hers. And uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful took me a long time to get that interview and it was on a cassette tape and it was damaged so I, I, I'm very glad to have it in the movie. Let's go back Rob I mean how did you first discover Pauline I'm guessing same as everybody you discovered her from a book or did you discover her from the New Yorker? It was the New Yorker I, w- I was uh, in college in the 80s and that's where I first found her and that's when I started making my own movies you know when I read her it was just different. She she really wasn't a film critic. I mean, that's what I tell people. She was a writer whose subject was the movies. And, you know, she was just so different. She was just so alive and vivid and strong in her opinions and damn smart and 
really very funny. And uh, all those things, I think, as you sort of said, you felt like you were reading or talking to a friend about mm. movies. As it turns out, that's what she really was trying to do all the way back to the 50s. She wanted to change the nature of film criticism, and, and uh, she really did. But for all her apparent power and influence, she spent a lot of time trying to make a living out of it, didn't she? I mean, it was struggling to get a gig a lot of the time, wasn't it, her life? She really did, yeah. She didn't really make a living at film criticism full-time until she was in her mid to late 40s, and uh, that was when she got the job at The New Yorker in 1968. Up until that point, she was always writing and always submitting pieces and selling pieces, but it wasn't enough for her and her daughter to live on. So she did many other things. That's part of her story. And I think that informs her outlook as well, to some extent. You say that she uh, she got a job with a New Yorker, which you would have thought would have been a perfect marriage, but it, it was a pretty thorny one. She, she spent most of her time fighting with the editor, as far as I can see. Yes. <laughs> yeah, William Sean was the editor there, and he was extremely well-respected and extremely... Um, conservative man personally. Pauline liked to use all the words in the language, let's say that, and and uh, Mr. Sean did not. <laughs> so they bumped heads. What do you think Pauline Kael thought her job was? You've hinted at the fact that it wasn't standard uh, film criticism. I mean, what was the standard of film criticism at that stage? Well, there's a story I heard from somebody who said they were at a dinner party with Pauline Kael and Sidney Lumet. You know, they were talking about that very question, and um, Pauline apparently said to Sidney Lumet, my job is to tell you what to do. <laughs> so that didn't go over too well. I don't think they spoke after that. But, um, you know, she felt very strongly that what she wrote was correct and that uh, filmmakers could do well by listening to her. I love the fact that she got into big arguments because quite often a lot of these things that she took uh, issue with were things that certainly could have been questioned. One of them was the famous auteur theory, the business about the director's signature, and she got into a big argument with the well-respected academic critic Andrew Saris, didn't she? That's right. You know, she disagreed with him, and I think that's been blown up because people now talk about the auteur theory in, in very much in general, but when Saris wrote about it and Pauline replied to it, he was talking about this older set of movies from the 30s and 40s. And her reply to that was, of course, there were no auteurs in the 30s and 40s. It was the studio system. And it was a very collaborative effort. She made her point in a, in a way when she talked about Citizen Kane. She got into another huge fight. Not exactly a fight, but she said Orson Welles was all very well, but it was actually the writer who was the one. And it ended up being rather bitter discussion between these people. Well, you're right about that. But her famous essay is called Raising Kane, all about the making of Citizen Kane. And, and really, it's one of her best pieces, I think. It's so entertaining. And she goes into the history of newspaper reporting and how that informed Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote the original screenplay for Citizen Kane. But her piece was partly intended to give him his due, I think, because Orson Welles was such a, a big star. And, you know, Orson Welles does have co-writing credit in the actual movie, but she kind of wrote a piece that shows that Herman Mankiewicz uh, because of his relationship with William Hurst and also his background of working in the newspapers in the 30s, that that film was really his idea. I think Orson Welles made it his own, and, and Pauline loved Orson Welles, and, and uh, she wasn't really out to get him, I don't think. There's a lot of love in that essay uh, for Welles, and you know a lot of good points made about how Mankiewicz really was um, not just a co-writer, but he was maybe an instigator. 
I mean, for all the fact that she's famously came down like a ton of bricks on the auteur theory, there were definitely directors that she liked and directors that she didn't like. The thing is that she she loved people and got that reputation, but she was honest. And if somebody that she, quote, liked didn't make a good film, mm. she wouldn't hold back. But Robert Altman was one of the ones she really liked. She loved Nashville and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and some of his other movies. And she loved Brian De Palma. She loved his the sensuous style of directing and the way he used the camera. And uh, she was a fan of early Scorsese and early Spielberg, but she also didn't like a lot of their later efforts. So it wasn't unquestioning love for these people. You have to do a good job. I think so, yes. I found that the people that she disliked quite surprising. Like, she didn't like Kubrick very much. She got into a huge fight with David Lean to such an extent that David Lean just stopped making movies for a few years. He was so shaken by a run-in he'd had with her. Yeah, that was surprising to find that out uh, to me because at the time he was one of the most respected directors in the world. And I, uh, I, I don't really understand it myself, but it says something about David Lean, I think, but it says something about Pauline too and that she wasn't afraid to go after people that she really didn't like. And I I think her intentions were maybe that, you know, she was trying to say, okay, David Lean, you made Ryan's daughter, it was from the early 70s. You made this film and it's really flat. It's not very good. It's kind of dull. You can do better. I think that was her point, maybe. I was surprised that she seemed to dislike Billy Wilder so much. When when she did praise him, it was very reluctant. I found that a little bit odd as well. But it just underlined the fact that Pauline Cow was a very American writer. A very, she came from a very American place, I think. She did. And Billy Wilder, you know, was very American too. But, you know, she didn't like his, his cynicism. And he, she thought he was gimmicky, I think. Yeah. And uh, he was always looking for the quick line and the comeback and a snappy dialogue. And she, she didn't think he had much depth. And, you know, it's interesting doing all the research on Pauline. I found out she was just a voracious reader. I mean, she was like a genius probably in her reading because these personal letters I found in her early 20s writing to friends and telling them about books she's read and you know she's read all of Henry James and she's read Chaucer and Shakespeare and poets and to me that says a lot about what kind of writer she became because she she knew literature and she knew that movies were more of a two-dimensional art form maybe than a three-dimensional one as as literature or music is and so I think that comes out in her writings she's taking movies for what they are one thing uh, you mention in the film, and you illustrate it extremely well, I have to say, is she loves a look. She loves looks between people. She loves actors, I think. You know, she just loves moments in movies. And you've captured so many brilliant ones that really illustrate that, I think. It must have taken a, a lot of time and effort. It did. It did. <laughs> well, it took four years, so it uh, took a lot of time to go through it. But you're right. She loved actors, and some of her best writing is about actors. Uh, she wrote a piece on Marlon Brando, and she wrote about Olivier and De Niro and Pacino when they were starting out. And she would just fall in love with, with good acting, and she didn't care if she went too far on the page. That's, you know, that's who she was. One thing also about her is that uh, you that you mentioned that everyone mentions is her fantastic recall. The astonishing thing to me was she saw most of these movies once. Everything that she remembered many years later in some cases just came from that one vivid memory. Yeah, 
She was one of those people, I think, who had a photographic memory. I mean, even people who said, you know, when she was in her late 70s and early 80s before she died, she still had unbelievable recall. When you most people see a movie, you remember the great moments. You remember, you know, something that struck you personally. But mm. she remembered those things as well as everything else, <laughs> it <laughs> seems. Was there a significance in her being a woman? Um, it's a question that would be asked now far more than it would have been perhaps 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. Oh, there definitely was. I mean, the thing I admire about her is that she um, she wasn't a feminist and she never belonged to any kind of groups that ended in ISM or IST, but she led by example, I think. I mean, she really lived a difficult life and she raised a daughter on her own and didn't compromise because uh, there's a scene in my movie where she gets a job in advertising as a copywriter and they promoted her. And when they put her name on the door, she realized she had to quit because she realized she would not become the kind of writer she wanted to. She was a strong woman, but never talked about it. She did talk about women filmmakers and uh, women directors as they came along in the 70s. She was definitely pro-woman, but, um, you know, I think she's like maybe a, a black saxophone player who says, well, I don't want to be known as the great black saxophone player. I just want to be known as a great saxophone player. Mm. These days, everybody wants to talk about women and their role. And, you know, she was um, what she was what she said and what she did. And um, she didn't like movies with a message that was too overt. And she also wasn't about giving out messages herself. She was really just all about the art of things. That's what she really loved the most. There's a tradition, particularly in New York, of tough cookies who, you know, who aren't going to be pushed around by anybody. Yeah, that's right. And she was. She was very tough. I mean, I think she was always tough-minded, even as a child, from what I can see. And the people that I talked to. She was nothing if not honest. And um, it was very tough for her, I think, to get people to hire her. She didn't get jobs because she wrote too long. You know, she she had uh, too many things she wanted to say. And so she, she didn't get a job at, at the San Francisco newspaper when she could have really used it. But she kept going and she, you know, she wrote these long essays and she only was published in the film journals at first. And then Finally, she got a job at Life magazine, which brought her to New York, and then McCall's. And, you know, she basically lost those jobs because she stuck to her guns and she always wanted to write more than the magazines wanted to publish. And uh, when she finally got to The New Yorker, I think it was, well, as her daughter says, it was heaven for her because they gave her space and some of her reviews would go on for four or five pages. She found her place. You mentioned her daughter a couple of times, and the one thing I loved about the film was her. The daughter is the sweetest person in the film, and she must have had a really tough job because mum treated her like hired help, except she didn't pay her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she did pay Gina. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Gina is very different from her mom, and she's a much more, you know, Pauline was an extrovert, Mm -hmm. and you don't think of writers that way, but she always had people over the house, and she would make people dinner for whoever was there. And when she was young in Berkeley, she had a projector going, showing movies or playing jazz and people dancing. And Gina was more introverted. And, you know, I think uh, Gina did have it tough because, of course, any child would have it tough when your mom's a critic. But, you know, she worked for her mother for a long time and and her mother did uh, pay her. There was a a lovely quote that Pauline Kael said. She was talking about being one of the few women in a 
pretty much a boys' club, but she said that men like talented women. They just don't like argumentative women. And that seemed to be her experience of her life, really, didn't it? Yeah. She didn't hold back from letting people know that her rational mind was as strong as her uh, creative mind. She was actually a debater in college, too, I believe. There was a a television show where she did an interview, and the um, interviewer said that her writing was impressionistic. And I don't think he meant it as an insult, but for her, I think she thought that he meant she could only write from emotion. And uh, for me, her reviews are so fun because they are so rigid. And when she makes a point, has an argument, she backs it up. And that combined with her passion for good movies made her the best critic of her day, I think. So after Pauline Kael, where could you possibly go, Rob? Have you got another project on the go? I've got a couple, but they're not documentaries. They're fiction. So um, I'm working hard. That's Rob Garver, director of What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kale, one of the undoubted highlights of the New Zealand International Film Festival, which has just opened in Auckland before travelling the rest of the country. For anyone interested in movies, it's a must-see, but it's equally intriguing about all sorts of criticism. Pauline Kale gives opinionated influencers a good name. And that brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.